Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. So I, um, the Lord has blessed me with some really fun um, stories. So I'd love to tell you one this morning about my life. Uh, yeah, I was, I was either 10 or 12 years old. And um, anybody remember Lord of the Rings? All right. All my homeschoolers are like, sweet. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, those movies, I'd read the books and those movies started to come out around that time in my life. And um, we, my family and I, we would drive to Nebraska every weekend, um, every weekend of my childhood life and high school life, because that's where my grandparents were. And they had a farm and a farmhouse and stuff. And so we'd go on the weekends and help grandma and grandpa on the farm and, and do all sorts of stuff. But when I was a kid, my role as a kid on that was, was, to, was to rid of anything and everything that moved. So if it was on the farm and it shouldn't, have, it shouldn't be, it was my job to eradicate it. I was the Rambo of Nebraska, all right? And you know, I'm, 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 you know, and we started doing this when I was about six years old. So at six years old, my grandpa literally handed me a little 410 shotgun and said, have fun, the neighbors are over there and we're right here, so don't shoot anything in that direction, all right? And I was like, cool, every six-year-old loves guns. Um, and so I also at the time, um, at 10 or 12 years old, Lord of the Rings came out and I loved Legolas, the guy with the long blonde hair and he had bows and arrows and so I was like, oh, I'm gonna be like this guy. And so I started fashioning for myself bows and arrows. Really great idea. And, um, and so then I started being gifted some of these things um, because what 10-year-old doesn't need an arsenal, all right? And, um, and so I, uh, one day, my prey was very elusive. And it was around the farmhouse and I was trying really hard to catch him, but this squirrel had some experience. And so, and, but little did he know who he was messing with. Um, and so I, um, you know, instead of, instead of the high caliber rounds today, I decided to go stealth mode and bring my bow and arrows with me. And, um, and so the, around the same time, my stepdad also got a brand new, well, brand new, a cherried out 1991 Ford F-150. And it was gorgeous. It was white with a green stripe, I'll never forget it to this day, with a brand new um, trailer topper on top of it. It was really nice. And this squirrel, as I was hunting it, it decided one day that it wanted, as I was following it along, it hopped on top of the truck. And I thought, this is my moment. This is, the, this is my time to shine. No longer will this squirrel eat my grandma's cherries or whatever it was devouring at the time. And so I took steady aim, I pulled back the string, and I loosed my arrow. And I hit it dead on. Not the squirrel, the truck. <laughs> right through my stepdad's brand new window of the truck. Just shattered it. Straight through. Now, this is that moment in the movie where the main character goes, oh, 
crud. You ever know, you ever know when you're about to walk, you know, you parents and, and folks and anybody, you know the moment when you know you are dead? Like, you know, when you just, you, you just, I just thought to myself, cruel, might as well become, might as well hitch a ride to Canada or something because I know my life here is over. It's done. And uh, went straight through the window and needless to say, my arsenal was revoked from me. Um, but windows, as I was thinking about this passage and as I, you know, windows give us perspective. As I shot through that window, it gave me a lot of perspective on how I need to impress and get my aim a little bit better. But even people, windows give us, windows give us so much perspective. They give us insight. That's why Bill Gates named his company Windows. It gives insight, perspective. Did anybody see the new web telescope pictures? Anybody, any, any nerds out there? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, let's go. We are just now through the Webb Telescope, getting a perspective of some of the most wondrous, amazing things about our universe, right? Like they, they, they took a picture of, of just a, a, a blip. Literally, if you were to take a piece of sand and hold it up, all right, that's how much of the galaxy they took a picture of. Not this much, not this much, but a piece of sand. And it had over like a trillion stars in it that the computer that they loaded into the thing, it like broke. They, it couldn't comprehend how many stars and galaxies were in that photo. And as I was looking through this passage that we're going to look through today, 2 Samuel chapter 7, it re really reminded me that the Psalms and the life of David are truly a window. They are a window into who God is, into our own life, into so many different aspects. And FSM, the high school side, we've been for the past, um, for the whole year of 2022, we've been looking at um, the book of Psalms. We've been looking at David's heart and David's motives and David's emotions and, and all these wonderful things that he's been writing about. And it's been a huge, huge blessing for my life. Um, and as you've read, if you've been doing our Bible plan, which I really hope you are, um, you've read a lot of big things in David's life recently, right? We, you probably, you read about him being anointed by Samuel. You read about David and Goliath. So many big chunks of David's story you've read this past week. Um, and it's cool to me that besides, besides Jesus, do you know this, that David has more ink in the Bible than any other character, any other character besides Jesus has more ink written about him. And during that time frame that you've read, scholars believe that he's written somewhere between 30 to 40 of his 73 Psalms. <laughs> the dude was writing. He was going through a lot. And I love this chapter that we're gonna read today. Because not only do we get a window through David's life, we also get to understand who our wonderful God is. So majestic, so wonderful. It's a significant chapter because it's when God makes his covenant with David. Through David would come a true king that will establish justice, peace, hope, restoration, and a heavenly inheritance. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? This covenant became the hope and the identity of Israel. You could, uh, you, you, I, I'm convinced there, there is, this is probably one of the most 
key, most important passages in all of the Bible because it's our hope. It's our promise that a Savior will come. And as we've read through David's life at FSM and as you guys have read David's life this past week, I think what, I hope you've noticed by now that you've seen that David's life has been marked by a lot of things. It's really truly, David's life gives us a blood and guts window of life on a fallen world. In verse one, as we'll see, it says that God has given him rest from his enemies. Think about it. What a life of war. A life of war, heartache, and contention this man lived through. Constant treachery, all the time. Constant treachery, constant conspiracy, family treason, deceit all around him. At times, it was hard to know who was David's enemy and who was David's friend. When we see David's life, with all of its shocking honesty, we are confronted with how utterly broken everything that touches us actually is. My question for you this morning is, is your view of life that realistic? This is a broken world. Friends, brothers and sisters, we don't live in a world that needs to be tweaked. We don't live in a world that just needs a little bit of moral adjustment. Our world doesn't need a self-help book. Our world doesn't need a slight adjustment. We live in a world that is groaning, waiting for redemption. We are broken sinners, desperate, in desperate need of help. Now, I'm really driving this nail into the coffin because there are too many of us, including myself, seriously, who don't take the fall seriously. I sometimes have to pinch myself and remind myself that I live in a broken world. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's easy for us to turn on the television and go, wow, our world's messed up. Lord, please come. That's easy. That's easy to do. But sometimes what I'm talking about is I'm referring to how, how do we respond personally? How do, we, how do we respond functionally to our personal experience? We may see a broken world, but functionally we live and think like that broken world shouldn't affect us. So we become shocked when people around us sin against us in a world like ours. You and I naturally walk into life and relationships with friends and family expecting all of it to be like an episode from Leave it to Beaver. We really do. Things should go my way. Things should go our way. There should be no slight inconvenience in my life. This is how we actually, this is how we naturally walk into things. I talk with parents who are utterly shocked and perplexed that they gave birth to a sinner. I'm not talking about these people. No, they're perfect. They're great. Our teenagers are great. I talk with parents all the time. I, I, I examine my own heart all the time. Wow. We're perplexed. I talk with couples who are shocked that they married a sinner. Typically, they figure it out before the end of the honeymoon. And sometimes they have to hold up the marriage document and make sure it's a firm contract. Okay. This is solid. Our bodies are slowly dying. The economy is a roller coaster. The list goes on. We live in a broken world, and there's a way you and I 
hear me, should righteously weep through the story of David. We should weep as we watch what sin does. We should. We should weep as we watch what sin does to politics, spirituality, family, loyalty, and friendship, motivation, goals, purposes. We should cry truly, O Redeemer, please come. Because the world of David is a world that is broken, and David knew that. Just look at Psalms 106. It outlines the horror of the Israelites' choices after being released from Egypt. One moment, they are dealing with subtle forgetfulness of their Lord. The next time, they are in full-blown debauchery as they sacrifice their kids to demons. It's not pretty. Gee, Evan, what a gloomy introduction. You're the youth pastor. Usually you start off with something lighthearted and funny and you have kids chew gum on stage or talk about snails. That's true. But what I wanted for us to understand and realize this morning is that I'm setting the stage for one of the most important pieces of history the Bible has ever written. That God has ever written, excuse me. The main reason we should start off understanding the seriousness of the deep darkness we live in is so that we can really understand and jump for joy with the covenant God, with our covenant God that gives David this promise. This is the world that David has been living through. So can you imagine when God comes to him and gives him a promise of a redeemer? It's ginormous. And I don't want us to miss it. If we don't see the sheer depravity of the destructive, hopeless nature of man, this covenant won't seem as sweet and world-altering as it already is. The Bible says over and over that we need a redeemer because our hearts are now separated and deceitful. Through this window, we are seeing the sheer vileness of men, yet at the same time, the overwhelming, incomprehensible, jaw-dropping, immeasurable hope of a future Messiah. Wow. It should leave you and I speechless. And as I was writing this, truly, as I was looking through what to read about and 2 Samuel 7, as we'll read, was, was popping out at me, and I, and I, I just thought, how? How? How can I, in the time I have in one sermon, explain the promise of a future hope of redemption for the world? The short answer is, is I can't. You know why? Because we're going to be doing that for eternity. How can I, in the time I have, do this? It's like when you go to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and you try to pile as much as you can on your plate only to realize you aren't even remotely close to the end of the serving table. You know the feeling. This passage that we're about to read is a huge pile of joy. So get ready to fill your plates. The real character that's on center stage in the life of David, shockingly, is not David. You wouldn't think, you would think that if you wrote a person's biography, they would probably be the central character. But in this biography, the central character is actually not the person the biography is about. The central character in the story of David is not David. David is literally painted into the background. Although the story is about him, but center stage with the spotlight on him is our Lord.
David and his story is just the narrative of the Lord of sovereign glory and redemptive mercy. And what God is actually doing is using the story of David to put himself on center stage. And so in the story of David, you get a window of our Lord. So before we dive in, I just want to answer this quick question. What is a covenant? Right? For some of us, we, a lot of us may not know or we think we know what a covenant is. But I just want to answer this question. What is a covenant? Um, a, bind, a covenant is really just this. It's a binding relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. No one can bind God, but he binds himself willingly by his own word. God cannot lie. And once he gives the word, he'll do it. He'll do it. Even though you'll see the word covenant isn't actually in 2 Samuel 7, David calls it a covenant in 2 Samuel 23 verse 5 and several other passages. And what we'll see is how God did what we will see what God did to the dynasty of Saul, he will never do to the dynasty of David. Ultimately, it would be David's Lord, Jesus Christ, as a temple. So let's read. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. That means luxury. But in the ark of God dwells in the, but the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all my places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, if, unless you're a general contractor, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of house building going on. And what we see here actually is, is not just, this might seem like David wanting to build a house and, and God saying no, but what, what are we actually seeing between the lines here? What I see is God's beautiful dwelling place with his people. This is a gorgeous picture of the love of God. It's an incredible miracle of grace that God would choose to dwell with the people of Israel. This is our God. It is beyond imagination that the Lord of glory would be quite content to be a pilgrim in a tent for the sake of the redemption of his people. What an amazing thing. This is love that I thought about this week. This is love that I couldn't wrap my head around. I just don't have the ability that God comes to selfish and rebellious people, people who would rather have their own way rather than his way. And he makes his dwelling with them. He loves them so much. He doesn't care where he's at or what he lives in. He's just glad to be with his people. That's our God. 
He makes his truth known to them, and he's willing to be a pilgrim in order for them to have hope and redemption. Although, although, this is so wonderful, although God comes down to accompany his people on their journey with a tent as his dwelling, a tent carried by them all along, the Israelites have in fact been carried by him. This life of David gives us a window. This is a God of sovereign purpose. This is a God who is zealous to redeem. This is a God who understands how broken his world is, how broken people are. And so in the words that follow, God makes it very clear that he's made David's name great. And he's established David's kingdom, not just for this moment, not just for the next few generations, but that from David would come a house that would remain forever. We see David looking around at his palace of cedar and thinking, it's wrong for me to live in this kind of luxury while the Lord is still in a tent. But the Lord had something even better in mind. Look at verse 10. And I will appoint, this is God speaking, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Literally, the passage goes like this. David, you've said you want to make a house for me. Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to do the building. Thank you. I'm going to build a house where my presence will be limitless. So thanks very much, but I'll do the building here. And I'm going to build your kingdom. And I'm going to establish a house that will remain forever. Literally, that promise is a promise of Christ. Christ said, destroy this house. And in three days, I will raise it up. He was talking about himself. And then the life of David gives us this gorgeous window on the truth. The truth of God. Look at verse 28. It says this. And now, O Lord God, you are God. And your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. So why? Why would we ever have confidence in God's truth? Are you doubting God's truth today? Why do we have confidence in God's truth? Is it just because it's logical? Is it just because it's wise? Is it just because it's ancient? Is it just because when you line it up with other philosophies of the world, this one seems to make the most sense? 
David gets it right right here. He ends the passage by saying, your words are true. And the reason David has confidence in the truth of God is because he has confidence in the God behind the truth. It's huge. You see, our hope is in the Lord. He is a God of awesome power. He is a God of glorious grace. He is a God of unshakable purpose. He is your hope. Your hope is deeper than principles and your hope is deeper than outlines and your hope is deeper than printed wisdom. Praise God for his word. Praise God. His word is reliable because behind the word of God stands the God of the word. It's huge. But my friends, it gets even better. It gets even better. That leads to another thing is that this is a window that shows me the utter reliability of God's promises. Look at the strength of verse 16. There's, n- there's not much equivocation here. And it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Look at Matthew 1, chapter 1. That promise being fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem of the house of David to establish his kingdom forever. Matthew 1, 1 just says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Incredible. Don't ever skip genealogies in the Bible. Because what's the message? The message in that short verse in Matthew 1.1 is this, is that there is a forgiving rescuing, accepting, transforming grace available to us. Hear me. Our hope is not our own righteousness. Our hope is not our own righteousness. Our hope is not our own righteousness. I know this is Colorado and we like to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get things done and be self-reliant and be independent. We were never meant to live that way. We weren't. Even from the garden all the way through eternity future, we will be dependent on Jesus. We have to be. We have to be. Our hope is not our theological knowledge. Our hope is not in our programs. Our hope is not in our biblical literacy. We have one hope. And when we are 10 million years into eternity, we will still stand in eternity based on one hope, the sacrifice of Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God. I think Matthew 1.1 is so briefly powerful. It it gives such an awesome argument for the reliability and the trustworthiness of the word of God. You see, this genealogy puts the real dust of the earth on the gospel. And if the history of scripture is not true, then the promises of scripture are not reliable. And that's why Matthew, who wants to argue for the kingship of Jesus, starts with history. Because he wants you and I to know that these things are not going to be declared by this gospel. Excuse me, I'm reading my notes wrong. Because he wants you to know that these things that are going to be declared by the gospel are rooted in history. 
This is not just a God who's spoken. This is also a God who's acted. In your little notes, and on, on this, you know, I always tell my kids, note takers are world changers. Mark up your Bible. Right next to Matthew 1.1, put 2 Samuel chapter 7. Right next to 2 Samuel, put Matthew 1.1 and remind yourself all the time that God's words are true and his promises come to fruition. All the time. In these words, you get this powerful argument for the identity of Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth, born that ignoble birth in that manger, son of a carpenter, is in fact the promised king, the son of David, the Christ, Emmanuel, the son of God, God with us. These words confirm our identity. When you read Matthew 1.1, it should remind you of who you belong to. The covenant promises are for you and they are fulfilled in you and through you. If you are in Christ, you have now been welcomed out of the kingdom of darkness and into the eternal kingdom of his dear son. Hear me. I told this to our um, impact team this morning at our pre-service rally. Because of that, because of this promises, because of these promises, because of the identity you now have in Jesus, you are now, in a sense, many redeemers. You have the opportunity to walk around and bring redemption and restorativeness, if that's a word, to this world. Now, Jesus is the only one that saves, but hear me, anytime you're walking on a trail and you see a piece of trash and you throw it away, that's redemption. Anytime you see a friend who's struggling and crying and you have no idea what to say, but you put, their, you put your arm around them, that's redemptive. Anytime you're greeting or welcoming or Anything that, glory, that glorifies God, that's a big deal. There's no such thing as a minor glorification and a major glorification. It's all glory. When we choose to be instruments, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we're giving this world and showing this world a slice of heaven. Our identity matters. When we were at camp, at summer camp for the high school, the camp was called Unlikely. And it was about the story of David. And what we learned was how there, we are unlikely people who have been given an unlikely love. And how David was an unlikely person to be given this promise and how his unlikely genealogy with prostitutes and all sorts of people in it led to a future hope for all of us. Lastly, we see David's response in verses 18 through 29. I encourage you to read it all. It's one of the most heartfelt responses, one of the most heartfelt prayers, moving prayers in Scripture you'll, you'll read. Upon hearing the promises of God, remember, this is David, a man whose life had been stained and marked by just sheer treachery. Upon hearing the promises of God, the promise of a future king, the promise of a future dynasty, this promise of a future hope, you know what David does? It says he sits. 
Then in, in verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? This deeply moves me. Do you get a sense of the emotion that David is feeling? The sheer sense of awe, the sheer sense of humility. Me? Who am I? He sat before the Lord. I love ancient Hebrew. And this verb, sat, is identical to the verb that means to dwell. David's response to God's promise was to dwell in his presence. Like what we just sang about. In your presence there is freedom. And he asked the question, who am I? Who am I? He is brought to the end of himself and praises God. And you and I ought to do the same thing. The characteristics of this response might serve as a model for any Christian who has been overwhelmed by a sense of God's grace. It anticipates in spirit many of the Psalms of Thanksgiving. There's this genuine sense of humility David picked up on God's reminder that he had taken him from a sheephold in verse 8. David, you were just, you were a shepherd. Now therefore thus says, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord host, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people, Israel. Sitting before the Lord, David's mind ran back to the beginning. To Samuel's visit to his father's house. Everything you just read this past week, he's reflecting on. He's looking at all of the ways that God has moved in his life and brought him to this point. Times in his life that didn't make sense. I'm sure when Saul, when he was just playing his harp and Saul hurled a Spirit him and it's stuck in the wall. All the times he'd been betrayed, yet God brought him here. He was overwhelmed at the memory of all the good things which God had done, and from that day on, to bring him to the throne in Jerusalem and to bring peace and prosperity to Israel. He was overwhelmed. One of our biggest temptations is to take the blessings of God for granted. It's one of mine. It's so easy. It's so easy to wake up and go with the flow and brush your teeth and never once for a second dwell on the new morning mercies of God. We ought to do the same. It is good for us to look back on our lives and go, look at all the things God has done. When I'm counseling people and they're sitting across from me and they're overwhelmed and they're despaired and they're just, I can't believe I'm still, and I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Let's take a second and look back at all of the things Christ has done. This is where you were. Now look where you're at. The Lord loves it when we just take steps towards him. There is a sense of gratitude for God's promises. David had lived through a period of great uncertainty, not sure whether he would ever be king over Israel. Then he prays the promises that God has made to him, not so much to remind God, but to remind himself once again of the greatness of God that are reflected in his promises. And as you and I know, Jesus came. God stuck to his word and sent his son and welcomed you and I by grace out of darkness into the kingdom of light. So were you anxious this week? Were you fearful? Did your mind go to some if-onlys in your life? If only this, then my life would be better. When you, were you proud? Were you proud of everything you did this week? Were you proud of every word you said? Proud of, proud of your attitudes, your thoughts, your motives and desires? When you reached out for hope this week, when you reached out for peace this week, where did you reach? To a person? To a thing? Did you try to deny difficulty, sort of like that person who gets a bill in the mail and doesn't want to open it for three days? You know what's in there, but you're going to bask in the denial for a few days. Is your life a picture of the humility, the courage, the hope that comes from what's been displayed by these simple words? Matthew 1.1, a book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. There's hope for us. So my question for myself, really, and for you, is are we living in this hope? I don't mean on Sunday evening when your eyes are drawn to that hope or Sunday morning. I mean on Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday night, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your personal life, at your work, at your university. Do you embrace this truth spoken so sweetly by Jesus, recorded in Luke? Fear not, little flock. Your heavenly Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. You have a seat at the table. David's great because God has made him great because God has promised that in his greatness will be a throne that will remain forever. And God has the character and the power to do what he says. What a wonderful window the life of this man David gives us. And all of those windows point to the person and the work of Jesus. The king who would come and establish in his life death and resurrection, righteousness and peace and justice forever. What a message of hope. Friends, when we walk out that door, we should walk with our chest puffed up and our head held high. Because there is a king There is a prince of peace who made a way, who made a promise to David so that you and I 
would have joy and peace that surpasses all understanding forever because of him, because we'll be with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, thank you so much for loving us. Lord, when we look at the promise that you made to David, it should fill us with this exasperating hope. It's a hope that doesn't make sense. It's a love that's unlikely. It's, it's for people like me. It's for people like us, Jesus, that ask the question, who am I? Who are we? What is man that you consider him? Yet, Jesus, you considered us. You orchestrate the entire universe, yet you are mindful of us. And whether you were in a tent in an ark with your people or in our hearts, you just long to be in our presence. Sometimes we forget or sometimes we think that we have to just run to you, run to you, run to you, but you're right there. Lord, I just want to pray for anybody in here tonight, or excuse me, this morning, that needs you, that needed this truth this morning, that needed to be reminded that God's promises are true. Lord, I pray that you bless them, that you'd remind them that there is a peace to be found in Jesus. Father, we love you. Thank you so much that we get to be with you forever. In your name we pray. Amen.